So it's probably not lost on you that in Pittsburgh this week, they buried 11 Jewish neighbors of ours who were part of a congregation called Tree of Life. But if you read any of the backstory on what the process is like, there are people in their community that go by the Hebrew word shomrim, which is a word that comes from the book of Exodus chapter 22, and it is loosely translated as a guardian, as a, as a watchman, a guard, if you will. And it is in the development of that tradition coming out of Exodus 22 that when a Jew dies, there are those appointed to guard the body until it is ready to be released for burial. And there in Pittsburgh this week, because there was so much involved with the crime scene and in evaluating everything that happened, that, that those bodies had to be under the authority of the coroner and the medical examiner for a while. But that synagogue enlisted 72 hours worth of people to serve one-hour shifts, being shomrim, for each of the bodies. And for every hour that they served, they would read the Psalter right next door, reading psalm after psalm after psalm. And when their hour was up and the next person showed, the person who had just spent that hour showed them where they had left off in the Psalter. And until those bodies were ready to be released to those families that they might be buried Quickly thereafter, the Shomrim watched over them. And I think that moment, what that synagogue has faced in the last 10 days, as well as what the Shomrim have been responsible in the 72 hours following their death, that in some ways meets right at the center of the short passage that we're going to look at this morning in James. He's not addressing a a context of tragedy. He's not even alluding to tragedy, but he is speaking to a theme that that synagogue is grappling with this week. That that synagogue is learning to remind themselves of where they find their hope, where their anchor is. What they're doing in that moment, allowing God's presence to be near those bodies is to remind everyone that God is present even to the dead. And therefore, what that congregation is doing is considering the source. The source of all that's good. And James would have us, in these short five verses, do the same. To consider the source. Capital S. And so we're going to look at these five verses. We're going to ask ourselves these questions. The, the source, what... what what do you mean, James? The source. What, how, what do you mean by considering the source? And then we're going to ask, why, why does it matter that we consider God as the source of everything? And then finally, how do we do that? Consider the source in what way? Uh, consider the source why? And consider the source how? We're just in five verses. We're on the downhill slide of chapter four. If you're able to stand, I wonder if you would. <clears throat> James chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 
yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the in-your-face word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Starting in verse 32 to chapter 4, James is kind of shifted. It's like he got up and had a smoke break and then came back and had to talk about something else. Sorry, did I just say that? He... He has been, for the last several weeks, been talking about the kind of community that is formed by those who walk around with everyday faith in who Jesus is as Lord. Several weeks ago, we talked about how that community is forged by how it governs its tongue. And then a a week after that, we talked about how everyday faith keeps us together. When we might want to pull each other apart, we find that our everyday faith holds us together. And then last week, we considered how it is everyday faith that, that comes and, and circumscribes us and, and gets in between us when we are starting to quarrel or when we're starting to grapple with the desires that are in us. Um, all of those things that lead us to repentance. That's what everyday faith does. And then here, it's like scene change, tone change. Uh, in fact, James starts to sort of hone in on a particular segment of these fledgling churches. And he's pretty explicit about it. He doesn't just say just so anybody. He's, he's talking about merchants. He's talking to... Uh, to borrow a much later phrase, is talking to the entrepreneurs of the day. Uh, The ones that want to go set up shops somewhere. And he has something to say to them. And in verse 13, he kind of imagines what they think to themselves. the, the, The very default way in which they approach the world and commerce. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there, trade and make a profit. He's just talking about the average Joe entrepreneur of the day, the, the average, you know, uh, Shlomo of the day. That's what they called themselves back then. But it is those merchants that, that he's given his particular attention to, and at first you think, well, is James, like, is he, is he, is he kicking the idea of gain, of making a profit to the curb? Or is he having a problem with commerce in general? Or is he against the entrepreneurial spirit? Or is he really just against planning altogether, you know, because, you know, it, it just everything can happen. Why, why plan at all? And then you read verse 14. And you realize that the little hypothetical situation that he's setting up there and the issue that he's raising is, is not about commerce. It's not about economics at all. It's about something else. In verse 14, he says, Yet, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James's issue <clears throat> is not about economics. It's not about strategizing. It's, it's about how they are thinking of themselves, how they are thinking of God, and how they are thinking of their relationship to God. And so James's problem is not about gain. James's problem is not with planning. James's issue is a kind of living that is full of presumption. Presumption being that 
that way of, of seeing the world that totally um, sets God aside for anything you think about whenever you plan for whatever it might be. He's arguing that there is something missing profoundly in the way of thinking that leaves God out of the picture in whatever you might want to do with your life. It is in thinking like that that drives so much of what we do on a daily basis and we don't even aware of it. Our culture is, is full of, of inputs and suggestions and recommendations and cons- consultations that would say, you know, the divine... Um, do that Sunday, but, you know, it's really reserved for here. So let's leave it here, Monday through Saturday. You know, you're free to move about the cabin. Do whatever you want, right? And for some people, they're, they're really defiant about keeping God out of the picture of our planning. Uh, I don't have time to show you some of these clips because they move so quickly, but if any of you saw The Imitation Game, which is about the story of Alan Turing, uh, he was you know, instrumental in helping uh, turn um, the, to, to crack the German codes and uh, therefore allow the Allies to, uh, to prevail in World War II. And, and towards the end of the film, you hear actually Alan Turing say, God didn't win this war, we did. We did this. Winston Churchill, in the most uh, recent uh, biopic on his life, Darkest Hour, you, you hear Gary Oldman with all of the prosthetics talking about his own father. And he says, um, my father was like the Lord. Busy elsewhere. The defiant tone, the, the wistful tone, and of course there's always the cynical tone, which I have, I have quoted you before, that famous line from one of the episodes from The Simpsons when, when uh, you know, Bart is asked to say grace, and he says, oh, sure, uh, dear God, uh, we bought this food with our own money, so thanks for nothing. Yeah, and everybody goes, <gasps> but that's the kind of sensibility that, that kind of percolates in our world, and it's the idea that God is absent, that he's not existent, or that, that he is, um, you know, otherwise occupied or uninvolved. It's, uh, you know, it's the atheism that, that kind of is the air that we breathe, that, that even we who, who come to church on a Sunday morning, it can be kind of like a functional atheism, like that's just how we operate, because we're, we're really not mindful of, of God's activity, presence, or involvement in what we do, and that's why, why James is warning these merchants of that kind of sensibility. Of the idea of Jesus being Lord of your soul, but really of nothing else that you do. Now I know um, that there are some people in this room who are merchants that, that would probably find common cause with what you hear James addressing there in chapter 4. You are the entrepreneurial type. You, you trade in spreadsheets. Uh, you love cold calls. Um, you don't mind being disagreeable with people because that's how you make a sale. That's <clears throat> what you do. I know that most of us in this room, though, are not. We're not merchants. We're not of the entrepreneurial class. But you know why this text applies to everybody in this room? Because all of you spend something. All of you invest what you have in something. Any number of things. Time, talent, finances, aptitude, whatever it is. How you raise your children, what you aspire to, um, how you invest in your marriage, the relationships that you have. Everybody in this room invests in something. Everybody in this room plans for something. So we are all, in a way, 
just like the kind of people that James is narrowly addressing in chapter 4. And so we are all therefore prone to the very same problem, the presumption that leaves God out of the equation in all of our thinking or planning. We're all prone to that. You and I are all on a trajectory, so to speak. We all kind of have momentum behind us because of the choices that we've made or the choices that we are making with special emphasis on those who are younger, who are making some of the first choices for the very first time. Um, the, the question that James sort of puts to us rhetorically here is, when, how, has, how has your thinking about the hand of God factored into your equations about what you're thinking about with the rest of your life? With, with choices large and small. How you think of God's activity in the world will affect the way in which you apply yourself to anything and everything that you do. And therefore, what James is warning against is what the Proverbs did a really good job of helping us to set into focus when it says in Proverbs 16 and Proverbs 27, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring. James is helping us to recapture the idea that God is not simply one who started the the time going and then just sort of sat back on the couch and like watched it unfold. There's an involvement. There's a place. And that's why James is trying to point us in the different direction from where we're naturally inclined to go. Away from presumption towards something else. And so he puts that rather pointedly there in verse 15 and 16. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. He does not mince words. James has not minced words at any point in this letter. He is saying the presumption that leaves God out of the equation about all you're thinking and doing, he says that's an evil. That's a sin. Why? Why does that matter? Why is James so serious about thinking about God in how you put your mind and heart to anything else that you do? Because look, uh, you read verse 15 just like on the face of it. If the Lord, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It almost sounds like he's being a little superstitious. Kind of like the real fast, you know, three of those real fast. You know, if the Lord wills, you know, um, we will do this or that. But if you'll just meditate a little while on why he might be arguing for us to take God's involvement, God's providence in hand more carefully, I, I think you see the wisdom in it. The opposite of presumption is a belief in God's presence, his involvement, what we have talked about before, God's providence, his providential hand. And to believe in providence is to do something. It is to foster in us all a sense of dependence. Now, that word that I've just used in American culture is almost like flatulence at a dinner party. I'm sorry, you said what? Dependence? Are you kidding me? This country was forged on self-reliance. 
on stick tootiveness, on, as they might have said, unfortunately, the Protestant work ethic. Dependence? Why would anybody want to be dependent? Why is that preferable to believe in providence and therefore to foster a sense inwardly of dependence? I'll, I'll, I'll help you think about it. The reason it's preferable to live in a state of dependence on God, it is the, first of all, it is the best way to live with humility. For one, if, if you believe that everything that you have and all that you've been pleased to gain depends in no small measure on so many things that were outside your control that, it was, that God is ultimately responsible for all of that, then you are far more unlikely to think of yourself too highly. You are far more unlikely to look down on others when you walk with the humility knowing that every good thing that you have is a consequence of things outside your control. That's humility. Uh, Paul Woodruff is a professor at the University of Texas, and he wrote a book called Reverence, which just sort of analyzed the very idea of it. And reverence is that idea that, that you are not as important or as powerful as you think. It is walking in this life with a kind of awe and respect for everything that is around you. And when he said in that book on reverence, he said this, reverence begins in a deep understanding of human limitations. From this grows the capacity to be in awe of whatever we believe lives outside our control, which, as it grows, brings with it the capacity for respecting human beings, flaws and all. Why is believing in providence? Why is appealing to providence important? Because it fosters a humility that allows you to treat others with dignity and respect. But humility in itself, it's just sort of upstream of, of much else that's good. And why James is making such a big deal about appealing to providence. Because when humility reigns in your heart, you know what else flows down from that? Gratitude. Gratitude flows from that humility. I think you would not disagree with me that it is the most thankless people in your world and in our world. It is the most thankless people who are most who are the most bitter about the way things have not turned out they had a certain expectation for what it should be and it didn't turn out to how it can be and therefore they are most bitter about what it is because they have no place for gratitude in their world and yet if you are grateful that you see whatever gain you get as a goodness you see it as a kindness and therefore, whenever losses come to you, those losses don't, they don't elicit from you bitterness because you realize that nothing was promised. Nothing you got was earmarked from you from the beginning so far as you know. It's come to you by an act of graciousness. And therefore, downstream from humility is this wondrous and necessary thing for us to have a vibrant life called gratitude. And from gratitude flows one other thing, downstream of that, that makes it more important why providence should be present to our thinking, and that is generosity. Humility breeds gratitude. Gratitude breeds generosity. There are all sorts of reasons for people to be generous or philanthropic, but a lot of the times, what's motivating them is what? Recognition. 
put my etch my name on the building. I want something in return. Oh, I'll give you plenty. But let's all wink, wink, nod, nod here about what that really means. That's a form of generosity, and it has a long pedigree. But the best kind of generosity, the kind that Jesus encourages about not even letting your left hand know what the right hand is doing, is the generosity that doesn't expect anything in return. That, that doesn't see it as an opportunity to gain anything in return. And it wants no recognition for it. That generosity proceeds from that gratitude, which proceeds from that humility. And the, the parable of Jesus that I think captures, if you will, the very opposite of what James is talking about is that parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12 about uh, the man who... who uh, goes off and, and ends up becoming a very lucrative businessman and his, and his fields are going well. And he says, I'm going to build all sorts of barns. It's going to be a great time. I've made far more than I've ever expected. So what am I going to do? I'm going to build all the more barns. And so how does that parable end? In verse 17 of chapter 12, Jesus says in the parable, and the man thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The absence of one's grasp of God's providence and involvement and interest in their life is a recipe for an absence of being rich unto God and in this sense being rich toward neighbor who might be in use and might be in need of those things which one is in the possession of. It's our appreciation for God's involvement in our life that makes us humble, makes us gracious, makes us grateful, and makes us generous. And therefore, it matters because it does have an effect on our character. But it also matters in just the way we plan. In whatever we set our heart and mind to, an appeal to God's presence and involvement in our lives, it has a big effect. And I'll tell you one reason why. Because a lot of the times, folks, you and I, we make choices and we are entirely blind to the motives behind them. At least at the front end. We see something, it sparkles, we go after it, and then the sparkle wears off. And we wondered, what is it that motivated us? Um, why did we choose this career? Why did we choose that place? Why did we make that purchase? Why do we spend intentionally time with this or that person? Um, we would like to say that a lot of that is motivated by theology. When it comes to relationships, a lot of it's motivated by endocrinology. And therefore, without an appeal to providence... We need to realize, or when we appeal to that, it, it helps check us against uh, what are our goals for what we're doing. And, and it is a check for uh, the manner in which we seek to achieve those goals and whether we should even pursue them at all. You know, when James and John, the disciples of Jesus, they, they come to him and they say, Hey, hey could, we, could we sit at your right hand at your left hand uh, when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus, in so many words, says... Um, I don't think this gig means what you think it means. And it will only be later when God shows his providential hand in the life 
and the storyline of Jesus that they start to discover that maybe, maybe they needed to have their, mo- their, their motives and their manner refined. It helps us sort through our motivations when we appeal to God and His interest and His will. It also matters when we need perspective in the course of pursuing whatever it is we're doing. And by that I mean this. If you think that you are the master of your fate and the captain of your soul, if you believe that there is nothing but your own wisdom and your own aptitude and random chance to determine your future, then you know what happens when your plans come to nothing over and over again? When you lose everything, you yourself will be lost. Because in that moment, you will realize that you will think that your only worth, your only gain, is that which you could have labored to bring into your being yourself. You need a different perspective. If God is, and He's in control, then even when all things have fallen apart, He is still your gain. He is still your good. Look, you cannot plan for cancer. You cannot control for a child tragically dying. There's no way around it. And that's why we need a hope in what is greater than my own worth, that is greater than my own work, that is greater than my own wisdom, and than my own power. And belief in God's providence, therefore, is that which furnishes us to suffer. And it will come. As surely as the leaves turn color, it will come. If you go out in the gallery today, the painting that won Best in Show is by a guy named Rafferty. Rafferty, not Lafferty, but Rafferty. (laughs) He did two. Just go stare at that one for a while. It's called Furies. Inspired by Hurricane Maria, came a a couple years ago. That's a metaphor for life, man. Storm's coming. And it's our appeal to providence that furnishes us to suffer when the storms does come. Does that, is that a proof for the existence of God? Of course not. But it is appealing to providence that helps us get there. It was the synagogue that lost 11 of its parishioners last week, and it was called the Tree of Life. And there's a scene from that Terrence Malick film called Tree of Life that I want to show you right now that I think helps us all to see, again, why appealing to providence matters. It's actually from a moment when the mother of children are sitting in a church service listening to a sermon on Job. Listen very carefully to the very breathless teaching and preaching of that sermon. Don't do like I do. Promise me that. I dreamed of being a great musician. Let myself get sidetracked. But you're looking for something to happen. That was it. That was life. We lived it. We run before the wind. We think that it will carry us forever. It will not. We vanish as a cloud. We wither as the autumn grass. And like a tree are rooted up. Is there some fraud? In the scheme of the universe, is there nothing which is deathless? Nothing which does not pass away? We cannot stay where we are. We must journey forth. 
We must find that which is greater than fortune or fate. Nothing can bring us peace but that. It's there when the piano comes in is the line that I actually wanted you most to hear. What the pastor says there towards the end of his sermon on the book of Job, he says, we cannot stare where we are. We must journey forth. We must find that which is greater than fortune or fate. Nothing can bring us peace but that. On Fridays, I drop Seamus at AB Tech and then I go to Summit Coffee and I have a cup of coffee. And there's a woman that struck up a conversation with me there a couple weeks ago saying, you always bring the most interesting books in here. What do you do? And I said, I'm a shepherd. I said, I'm a pastor. And so last Friday, I'm there and she's there and she says, I'm on a 12-month journey to find joy and meaning. And I said, how do I get that job? But she's interviewing all sorts of people as broadly as she can to hear different perspectives on where you find joy and meaning. And she asked me if she could interview me for a podcast she's doing. And I said, sign me up. But as I've been driving around there and driving around this weekend, I've had to ask myself, what would I tell her? What would I say about what does it mean to find joy and meaning in Jesus? What is that? Like avoiding cliche and avoiding all the things that we go, oh yeah, yeah, he's over I think I know, and I need, at least need to say this, that in this life, because you can lose so much in a heartbeat, joy and meaning you can't experience in this life, but it has to be anchored outside of it. And so when that preacher says, we must look beyond what is fortune or fate, because only peace comes from there, I think that's true. Because if you try to find your peace anywhere in this world, you will lose too much that anything in this world cannot compensate for. It has to be found outside it. Will you suffer? Yes. How will you suffer? God only knows. How will you suffer without being swallowed by it? By looking for something beyond this world in which to find your joy and your meaning. That's why it matters for you and I to appeal to providence in every decision that we make. Maybe not what socks you wear this morning, but on most of the stuff that you know is important. I'll be very honest with you, though. The most important reason why it matters <clears throat> that I would believe in providence is this. I, I bounce between two extremes that you may also, two, two gravitational pulls. One gravitational pull is that I am totally oblivious to the brevity of life. Um, and that's a life that, uh, you know, has no problem with binge watching all the time or fill in the blank of whatever you might do that just sort of misses the fact that life is a gift and it's a gift all the way down. And, and you can be totally blind to the brevity of life either by, by frittering it away or being entirely bitter by how things have not unfolded like you thought they were because you're, you're blind to the way life is a gift all the way down. That's, that's one extreme. And then when I realize that, I bounce over to this other extreme and that extreme is being paralyzingly afraid of the brevity of life seen in the ways in which I frittered it away and then kind of rushing over here and kind of like getting into this frenetic way of trying to compensate for all the time that I've wasted or, or trying to, to prove something to uh, myself or to the Lord or to somebody else that, yes, finally, I've justified my life. And then I, I sit there for a while and I go, <laughs> I can't. I, I naturally go there and, and in my attempt to fix what I did there, I stay here. And it's like, this is no fix. 
And when I find myself in that cycle, maybe you feel that some way in two in some measure, I, I remind myself or I rediscover why is it that we need God's providential hand in the gospel. Because his hand moved. And perhaps only as amazing as God bringing all things into being, God's providential hand worked in the sending of his own son to earth as one of us, entering into our weakness, submitting and subjecting himself to all manner of persecution, allowing himself to be ridiculed and eventually murdered. And he would die. And he would be raised again. And that is God's providential hand at work, not aloof, not uninvolved, not busy elsewhere, there, present, alive, and for you. And for God to providentially arrange that world for that purpose, for our good and our eternity, do you know how that changes the way we think about the brevity of life? For Him to show us that we are blessed unto Him simply because we exist and we're made in His image, that we hear from the Apostle Paul that there is nothing that we have that we didn't receive, and for Jesus Himself to come in the flesh and die for us, that we might be forgiven and united and belonging to the Father and being sung over Him in love for all of eternity, an inheritance kept for us that cannot rust or spoil, that's love. And that shows us that this life is a gift all the way down. So that I might not be tempted to treat it as just a given, as a thing that I just got. It's a gift all the way down. And the gospel tells me that, but the gospel also tells me this. This life is also not something in which I have to prove something. I don't have to prove my worth to the Lord. I don't have to prove my worth to you because it's already been established. And it's been established by what Jesus has done. I read an article written by a psychotherapist who works with children this week. And and she works with children who are so full of rage that she has to take them into play therapy and watch them spit and cuss and, and, and rip dolls apart because there's something going on deep down in their lives. But she has realized that this is what is true of the gospel in working with those kids. That while most of our lives is all about this for that, as she puts it. If you do this, you get that. If you study hard, you get this job. If you work that hard, you get this salary. If you work that salary, you get this retirement. All of this life, so much of this life is a this for that, not the gospel. The cross says to us, it is not a this for that thing. It is a, I did this for you and you get that. It's not if you do this, you'll get that. It is what I did, Jesus says to us, and then we get what he has for us. That's God's providential hand. That's where we have to appeal to it. So how do we consider the source? If to consider the source is to avoid presumption and embrace providence, if it is to do so because of all the things it does to our character and all the ways in which we would even make the simplest choices, how do we do that? Um, I'll give you three and we're done. Keep the Sabbath. <laughs> what? Aren't we already? <laughs> By that I mean something that Eugene Peterson wrote. You know, well, he died two weeks ago and in his book, Working the Angles. He says, 
keeping the Sabbath is not just some sort of stricture that we apply because we want to make God happy. It's for our good. And so he boils down keeping the Sabbath to two things, prayer and playing. And you and I ought to be praying and playing on the Sabbath. And not just praying, thanks for the food. And not just praying like we need to eat fiber. Like it's, we need more fiber in our lives and more prayer in my life. It's actually wrestling with God about the things that we are thinking about and planning for. We pray, we play, so that we don't take ourselves so seriously and so that we see everything that we do in the context of what he's done. The atheists have everything to do with despising Christians. But among the atheists I've listened to, one thing that they do respect Christians or believers for is this, that every single Sunday, they actually think about the meaning of life. They actually wrestle with things about justice and love and charity and beauty. They don't wait for the latest film to come out before they start thinking about it, they say. They actually think about it. So I know you and I, we like to find exceptions to the rule about keeping the Sabbath, but if even the atheists can come up with a reason why they respect us for keeping it, then maybe there's something to it. Keep the Sabbath. Providence in our mind is something that we don't just sort of flip off as a switch. We kind of drift from our thinking of it. Keeping the Sabbath helps us there. Secondly, be rich toward God. And in a lot of ways, that means being rich toward your neighbor. That's kind of what we're going to talk about Friday night at the power of we thing. What does it mean to be rich toward the stranger? And if you want to be rich toward God, then you can be like him when you invest like an artist. Go check the art out. Do it. Don't leave here until you stare at some stuff. There's good stuff. We had a great time last night that Molly ran. But you need to invest like an artist, and by that I mean this. Everything is out there. They would, I, know, I know a lot of artists that would like you to invest in them, but you and I, and whatever we give ourselves, we ought to invest like an artist, and by that I mean this. Everything that they do, they are seeking to make a profit from it, but everything that they make themselves is for the good of the one that receives it. It is the, the gain of the one that has their work as much as the gain that they get from having made it. Invest like an artist. And finally, cast your anxieties upon the Lord. I know full well when it comes to God's providence that most of us are feeling like, yeah, I'd love for him to show up. I'd love for him to tell me what I'm supposed to do. I'm rather paralyzed by anything that I might think about that. Cast your anxieties upon him. Because why? Peter says he cares for us. I think when we do those things, we are honoring the fact that his providence is alive and way and real. And then we find our way again. Let's pray. We know full well, Father, what it means to feel like that you are absent. And yet we know so many of the stories in the text in which so many have the very same experience, and yet you are not absent. You are present in your absence, in your felt absence. And I would pray for myself and for my friends in this room that whatever way in which we need you to help us think through whatever it is that we're giving ourselves to, that you would be near and help us have the faith to risk, to fail, 
to get back up on our horse and to believe that because the gospel is true, we are yours forever. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.